0: Well, if you're here uh, regularly, you know that we've been reading the Bible through in a year. And now we're into the book of Ezekiel. And Ezekiel is a book that uh, not everyone finds easy to understand uh, in terms of first read-through. There are some relatively strange visions, strange to us. Uh, There are some enacted prophecies that you wonder what exactly is the prophet accomplishing and there are also some very extreme uh, graphic, and we, would, we could even say, in, in a proper sense of the term, uh, there are vulgar images as well. Uh, in fact, as you work through the book, one of the things that's quite discouraging is to recognize that uh, most of the extreme and graphic nature of the images has, has actually been watered down in English translation. And so whatever you read, as, as horrifying as it is, and some of the images are designed to be shocking and appalling, uh, know that it's, it's been softened a little bit uh, in terms of the vocabulary that's used when it's been translated. This book is designed to shock you and to grip you in a variety of ways, to bring you face-to-face with the glory of God and, in comparison, human sin. So what I want to do over the next couple of weeks is just take a few sections from Ezekiel as representative examples and try to put together a little bit of the book in terms of a framework for you, uh, and also then, this morning, present a bit of a biblical theology of the concept of God's presence in temple, and then do communion. And so I'm basically telling you right now, I've decided there's a time change, I have an extra hour this morning, and that's what we're going to do. So, I'm going to read Ezekiel chapter 1, Ezekiel Chapter 1. This is the Word of God. In my 30th year, in the fourth month on the fifth day, while I was among the exiles by the Kibar River, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. On the fifth of the month, It was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiakim. The word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, son of Buzzai, by the Kibar River in the land of the Babylonians. There the hand of the Lord was on him. I looked, and I saw a windstorm coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning and surrounded by brilliant lights. The center of the fire looked like glowing metal, and in the fire was what looked like four living creatures. In appearance, their form was human, but each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight. Their feet were like those of a calf and gleamed like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had human hands. All four of them had faces and wings, and the wings of one touched the wings of another. Each went straight ahead. They did not turn as they moved. Their faces looked like this. Each of the four had the face of a human being, and on the right side each had the face of a lion, and on the left the face of an ox. Each also had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. They each had two wings spreading out upward, each wing touching that of the creature on either side, and each had two other wings covering its body. Each one went straight ahead. Wherever the spirit would go, they would go, without turning as they went. The appearance of the living creatures was like burning coals of fire or like torches. Fire moved back and forth among the creatures, It was bright, and lightning flashed out of it. The creatures sped back and forth like flashes of lightning. As I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the ground beside each creature with its four faces. This was the appearance and structure of the wheels. They sparkled like topaz, and all four looked alike. Each appeared to be made like a wheel intersecting a wheel. As they moved, they would go in any one of the four directions the creatures faced. The wheels did not change direction as the creatures went. Their rims were high and awesome, and all four rims were full of eyes all around. When the living creatures moved, the wheels beside them moved. And when the living creatures rose from the ground, the wheels also rose. Wherever the spirit would go, they would go. And the wheels would rise along with them because the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. When the creatures moved, they also moved. When the creatures stood still, they also stood still. And when the creatures rose from the ground, the wheels rose along with them because the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. Spreaded above the heads of the living creatures was what looked something like a vault, sparkling like crystal, and awesome. Under the vault, their wings were stretched out one toward the other, and each had two wings covering its body. When the creatures moved, I heard the sound of their wings, like the roar of rushing waters, like the voice of the Almighty, like the tumult of an army. When they stood still, they lowered their wings. Then there came a voice from above the vault, Over their heads, as they stood with lowered wings. Above the vault, over their heads, was what looked like a throne of lapis lazuli. And high above on the throne was a figure like that of a man. I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal, as if full of fire. And that from there down, he looked like fire. And brilliant light surrounded him. Like... The appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day. So was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. When I saw it, I fell face down and I heard the voice of one speaking. Well as much as this text is obviously self-explanatory maybe we ought to pray and ask the Lord's help Lord as we come to your word this morning we are uh, we are aware that unless your Spirit animates us, and unless your spirit illumines our minds, we will not be able to understand your word. And so we look to you. You have given this vision to your prophet. You have superintended as it has been recorded and written down. And now you are the one who today can guide us and open up the meaning to us, not only so that we can understand it uh, to our capacity intellectually but also so that we can be strengthened by it. We recognize that all scripture is breathed from your very mouth. And so this section is useful for us. We can benefit from it. So we ask that you will guide us, help us, feed us, nurture us on the basis of this revelation. Lord, we desire to be people who honor you. Uh, We want to be a community of people who love one another and who love you supremely. We want to be refined uh, we want to be made pure. And so we pray that you will help us to see your glory this morning. Help us also to see the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ, as we observe communion together. Help us to truly remember that it's not only to bring him to mind, but also to act on the basis of what he is and what he has done for us. Lord, this is your time. You are the living God. So be with us, we pray, and guide us in the paths you have for us to walk in. For we ask it in Jesus' name, Amen. Now, just uh, just one quick housekeeping note. Uh, next week we are planning on having a baptismal service. There are actually several people who are interested in baptism. Uh, a couple of them are going to be away next week, so we will be baptizing them. Uh, at a future date, but we still are going to be having a baptismal service next week. So if that's something that you've been considering, or that you're interested in, uh, or if you've already been baptized, but want to be baptized again just to hedge your bets, uh, we can see, you can can come and talk to me, and we can try to sort those sorts of things out. But if you haven't been baptized and you're interested, please come and talk to me this week, and we'll be delighted to see if that's a step uh, that the Lord would have for you. Now this text here, Ezekiel chapter 1, I and mean, to be honest, as people are reading through the Bible, at this point, if I'm going to suggest that at this point, if you've kept up over all these months, you're not likely to stop now. But if you've gone through Isaiah, and then you've gone through Jeremiah, you hit here, and the first chapter can be reasonably discouraging. There's 47 chapters left. What are we supposed to do with this kind of material? How are we supposed to understand it? What is God doing? What is he revealing? Why does he speak this way? What are the categories in which we're supposed to be understanding him? Well, in the end... I'm going to be suggesting that there's a lot here that we simply aren't going to be able to understand. It's just going to go beyond our capacity, and there's actually a reason for that, uh, which I think is part of the message, actually. I think part of the message is this. You can't fully understand. And this is one of those wonderful times for me uh, in terms of preaching where I can say, if you leave saying, I didn't understand anything that Steve said, I was actually successful. Uh, I know that many of you leave that way most weeks, but this time it's actually intentional. Uh, Part of the macro message here is that there are realities beyond what you are able of grasping, that God is too big for you to fully contain. That's part of the the methodology in this type of message and revelation. Now, the prophet Ezekiel uh, is currently in Babylon. Uh, he, there's different waves in the exile. He's part of that first wave. So he's already in Babylon. Jerusalem hasn't fallen just yet. So a 15-year gap here from first wave to complete destruction. So he's already away. He's already in Babylon. He'll be prophesying about the imminent collapse of Jerusalem and Judah by the Babylonians. One of the things that's very important here, to understand the ancient world a little bit, this is, this is somewhat rough, but to understand the ancient world, you need to recognize that there was there was a collocation, there was a tight connection between people, gods, and land. So just like we have uh, in sports, you know, we have home court advantage or, or home ice advantage. That was how the ancient world looked at their deities. Uh, you had home court advantage when you were on when you were in a certain area. That's where that god was strong. Now, if you had a really strong god, then maybe you could sort of move on into someone else's domain, the way a visiting team can come in and beat the home team, but it was harder. This is actually why a lot of different nations would adopt the gods of the people they conquered. Because even though they may not be overly strong, you still got a little bit of home court advantage when you brought them into your pantheon too. So you're always trying to be respectful of the local deities. There was some advantage conferred that way. Now Israel has been dominated by the Babylonians. A lot of the Israelites have been exiled to Babylon. So the question is, if the Lord couldn't keep the Babylonians out of Judah and Jerusalem, then what good is it to worship God when you're in Babylon? That, that connection of people, land, and deity is broken. Now, he, Yahweh's home, home court is Jerusalem. But the Babylonians have conquered Jerusalem. They've already come into Judah. So if Yahweh, the Lord, can't keep his people safe there then what good is he going to do for you when you're in exile in Babylon in a foreign land under a foreign power and foreign deities? One of the things that this text is showing you is that the power and glory of God is in Babylon too. He is not dependent on a certain geographical location to be glorious. His presence and power is with Ezekiel right by the banks of the Kibar River, right in this place of exile Itself. Now, when you start working through the imagery of the text, verses 4 through 14, the one thing that should be very apparent is that the terms emphasize again and again and again sort of the, the brilliance and the flashing nature of the light. So it's almost like, in some ways, like a pyrotechnic display. Uh, there's all kinds of flashes, they're blinding, they're brilliant. So in verse 4, you read this. There's flashing lightning surrounded by brilliant light. The center of the fire. So I right, think have lightning, brilliant light, fire. The center of the fire looked like glowing metal. In the fire it looked like four living creatures. Verse 7. Their, la- their feet were like burnished bronze. It's to impress you with light. It, it, it's to impress you with... It's, it has the, the, the vibrancy of an electrical storm. And, and, of course, in this culture, that sort of powerful electrical storm would be the greatest display of light they would see. You know, we're so used to special effects today uh, that, that we sort of lost some of the, the awe uh, of the natural power and wonder and beauty. Uh, light pollution has done this, too, interestingly enough, uh, in terms of, of seeing the moon and the stars at night. But even in the ancient world where you could go out without light pollution and you could go up and you could actually see the stars, one of the amazing things about human nature is how quickly we can become uh, familiar with various things. It's been rightly said that if you could only see the stars once every ten years, everyone would believe that there's a God. In other words, if you could just go out, if you didn't see it night after night, but if you could simply go, if it was a display you only saw once a decade, and you looked up at all of the array of stars, even in our culture, if, if that was the case, you know, we, would, we would have laws that would mandate turning out lights at night. If, it was, if you could only have the opportunity once a decade to see the stars, we would shut down society in order to do that. It's so beautiful and precious. But because we have the opportunity every night, most of us just never even bother to, to consider you know, what we're missing out on by not taking the time actually to look heavenward. Now for, these, for this culture, this revelation, this imagery is of an overpowering lightning storm. Fire, metal superheated in fire, glowing like burnished bronze. is to impress you with the splendor and radiant light of these beings. Now, verse 10 says their faces looked like this. Each of the four had the face of a human being. On the right side, each had the face of a lion. The left, the face of an ox. And each had the face of an eagle. Now, it's not overly difficult to recognize that these are stock images. So, human beings are the pinnacle of creation. Uh, Lions, uh, or the, the king of the wild beasts, oxen were by far the strongest domestic animal Eagles dominated the skies. And so what you're being told here is not that you're not supposed to draw a picture, like this is what they actually looked like, this is their ontology. But what you're supposed to is you're supposed to recognize these beings, whatever they are, with all their with all the flashing light and, and the burning brightness and their gradient splendor, they have compositely all of the strengths of the strongest earthly creatures. So that they have everything combined, the wisdom of a human being, the power and might of a lion. The, the domestic strength of an ox. Sort of the, the freedom and, and royalty of the eagle. And so these beings are massively impressive in terms of their capabilities and their powers. And they have wings that they fly with, they cover their bodies with, in terms of modesty, because in the presence of the holy God. And uh, they, again, in verse 13, there's the emphasis that the appearance of the living creatures was like burning coals of fire or like torches. So they themselves are like burning torches. So you think about beings, you know, that look like they're on fire. That's what they are. And as if that's not enough, is flashing back and forth between them. Fire moves back and forth among the creatures. It was bright. It is, the fire is bright. And lightning flashed out of it. So you, you start to work through this imagery and you have these incredible composite beings that have every creaturely power. They look like they're on fire. They're in an environment of lightning pyrotechnics. And in between these on fire, these fiery beings, fire is flashing back and forth, moving back and forth. In it itself is bright, and lightning's flashing out of it. You almost wonder what the, the point is. And then verse 14, the creature sped back and forth like what? like lightning. Wave after wave after wave of imagery is designed to anchor down one point. This was bright. (laughs) This was the sort of thing which was blinding in its glory and brightness. So you have to sink that into your mind. Now, verse 15 through 21 you have this incredible blinding glory, and now you have these, these wheels, these wheels with, with eyes that are intersecting, and it's a little bit difficult, I will admit, it's a little bit difficult to sort of decipher exactly what's going on in some of the language here. But the point is this. This is some kind of chariot. Uh, the way the wheels intersect, the way the wheels move, and again, there's, there's imagery there that's a, that gives you reflection and refraction. There's precious gems and all of the rest. And so this is some sort of glorious chariot that moves with the living creatures. Now that's going to become important in chapter 10 of Ezekiel, which we're going to look at very, very briefly in a moment. So this chariot moves with the creatures. This is the chariot that is going to carry God enthroned to wherever he wants to go. So what you have here is an image very much like the throne room of heaven, except this is like when God decides to leave his throne It's obviously metaphorical. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. But when God decides to leave his throne room, this is his ride. Uh, this is what he is going to get into that's going to carry him to where he wants to go. These are his chauffeurs. This is his entourage. You know, when God wants to go somewhere, he gets these creatures with this kind of glorious, resplendent, flashing light. If he gets into this chariot, he puts his throne on this chariot and they are going to take him where he wants to go. It's, in some ways, his litter that he's going to get in and he's going to be carried by these beings. You get this in verse 22. Over the heads of the living creatures there's a vault or an expanse or a floor, sparkling like crystal and awesome. Now, I don't know a ton about anything, really. But if you have something that sparkles like crystal, and around it you have this sort of light and lightning and flashing fire, that crystal is going to be lit up. And that's the idea here. That this floor is designed, to, almost like a, like a mirror, to magnify, reflect, refract all of this incredible light and glory. It's blinding. It's awesome. Under the vault, their wings were stretched out. When the creatures moved, I heard the sound of their wings. Now, this is interesting. Um, I'm not sure, probably many of you do, um, I'm not sure how many of you hate Canadian geese. Uh, just, just out of curiosity, some, some do. And, uh, and you know what? I, I'm, not, I'm not the biggest fan of Canadian geese. Except for this. In the spring, I realized that my problem with Canadian geese is this. They are an utter nuisance in the artificial environment that we've created, in which I want to live without them. That if they're disruptive on the golf course, I haven't golfed in a number of years, but they're disruptive there. But they weren't designed to live on a golf course, interestingly enough. Uh, they're, they're a right pain when they're crossing the road, and because there's no natural predators around here, you know, people are stopping their cars. But they weren't designed to, to live in artificial little ponds in suburbs, nest, and then cross the road. They're a pain in the environment we've created for them. But if you actually go canoeing somewhere, or if you get out into where their natural environment is, they are shockingly beautiful birds in that natural environment. They're incredible. And one of the amazing things about them, is that if you're out on a river, or you know, like you're, you're canoeing, for example, or kayaking or whatever, if it's quiet enough, some of you can hear the, the thrum, and it's like a, a drumbeat in the air. And it's the power of their wings Utterly incredible. And if they sort of come over, especially if there's a little vehicle, they kind sort of come over low over trees to land. It can almost be frightening. If they come sort of behind, you just hear this drumming in the air and the splash into the water. Or when they take off out of the water, the thrumming in the air. It's amazing. Like, what are these beings going to sound like when they're beating the air with their wings? It's an overpowering, awesome kind of experience. In fact, not only is it the thrumming of their wings, it's actually like, it's like the sound of rushing waters. Now again, if you're out uh, in nature, sort of away from noise pollution, you don't know, you, you realize you can hear rapids an awfully long way away. Now, this is one of the ways, you, you know, in terms of location, if, if you're in woods, wandering around, and you're trying to figure out you know, where, where the water is, it's depending on where you are, sometimes you can start to hear the river, or the creek, flowing long before you could ever see it, long before you can start moving perceptibly downhill towards where the water source is. You can hear it. You go to a place like Niagara Falls. But it's just, it can be deafening. Like the voice of the Almighty. How does God sound when he talks? Well, presumably, uh, it's slightly impressive. Like the tumult of an army. So then you're, getting, you're getting all of this imagery piled up to impress you. When these beings move, you know, there's, there's when, when this when this when this car takes off, there's no muffler. You know, this is loud. This is impressive. So now it's 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 AV. You know, it's not just the it's not just the light. It's the sound. The whole thing is designed to overpower you and overwhelm you. You're astounded by what you see, and you're you're almost in a sense cowed by what you hear. You, you can't stand up under the weight of the noise and the light. Now then, there's a voice that comes speaking. And you look up, who's talking? Well, it's someone who vaguely looks like a man. And, and the reason you can't see him very clearly is just, how can you? It's too bright for your eyes. There's a voice but you don't really hear all of the words until a little bit later, because the voice is overpowering. Human eyes and human ears, human capabilities, were not designed to stand in the presence of a revelation like this. That's part of the point. He looks like he's made of glowing metal as if full of fire. From the top and the bottom half is fire itself. So here's this person who looks like he's completely on fire from top to bottom, and brilliant light surrounds him. So he himself is fiery. He's surrounded by light. And there's an appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day. There's bright radiance all around. You're supposed to read this and You're supposed to say, what on earth? What are you talking about? Like I can't visualize that. I can't picture that. I mean, you would just be so overawed in that environment. But unless you've seen it, you can't get it. Exactly. That's the point. And not only, you want to say, oh my goodness, what's it like to see God? Ezekiel saw God, no wonder. He fell face down. He fell as if he was dead. No wonder he saw God. But he didn't see God. He actually wasn't even close to seeing God. This wasn't even remotely a vision of God. This was the appearance of the likeness. Of the glory of the Lord. He doesn't see the Lord. He doesn't see the glory of the Lord. He doesn't really even see the likeness of the glory. When God wants to show his glory, this this is one way that God will make the likeness of his glory appear to you. But it's not God. It's not his glory. You're several steps away from that. This is merely the faintest representation. Just the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. In Ezekiel 10, God's glory, which is in the temple, is going to withdraw systematically from the Holy of Holies. It's going to withdraw right to the threshold of the temple, and we're going to be told that these beings that he sees are cherubim. And then he's going, the glory of God is going to get onto this chariot, and depart. It's gone. The glory of God has abandoned the temple. It has abandoned the people. This is why the temple can be destroyed without people dying. God's gone. nothing magical about the temple, It's it's just the place where God happens to be. That's what what sanctifies it. It's not a holy building. It's the presence of God alone that makes it special. When God leaves, there's nothing remotely special about the temple at all. And so God's glory is going to leave the temple because of the sin of the people. Now, this establishes a really important, pivotal moment in terms of a biblical understanding of what the temple is. A temple is sacred space where God meets with people. Okay, that, that's what the temple is. Now, there's mediation. We in the Old Covenant understand that there's mediation through the priests. There's mediation especially through the high priest. Sacrifices, day of atonement, we understand. It. There's a whole package there in terms of institution and religious cultists. However, fundamentally, you know, a temple is just a sacred space where God meets with people. The first temple you have, the first sacred space you have is the Garden of Eden. Now, I would defend this at great length, but I don't have that kind of time. Uh, There are markers which are very obvious that Eden itself is a sanctuary because that's where God walks with people. Adam and Eve are charged with language in Genesis 2 uh, of guarding and caring and tending for the garden, which is used only of priests in terms of their own religious worship later on when they look after the tabernacle. So they're given priestly function, and there to expand the Garden of Eden boundaries around the world. You have to realize, this is very obvious, but the Garden of Eden is not the whole world before sin comes into the world. The Lord planted a garden in the east. Eden is not everything. Uh, in fact, if Eden was everything, it would be awfully hard for God to take out of Eden, out of it. Right? Uh, so just this little tiny spot. Uh, what, what's going on in the whole rest of the world at this time? Well, uh, it's a very interesting question. Uh, that, that deserves an awful lot of thought. But what's going on in Eden is not what's going on in the rest of the world. They are to expand the boundaries of Eden until it's coextensive with the globe. That is, fill the earth and subdue it. Make the whole world my sanctuary. That's their job. Okay? Now, they're obviously going to fail at that, but then they're going to start reclaiming space. So that when the patriarchs are making altars, they're making little temples, little sanctified spots of the ground. Now, obviously, this is in a very small sense, God's going to give the instructions to build the tabernacle in Exodus. We looked at that a number of months ago. And the glory of God, recall, at the end of Exodus 40, the glory of the Lord fills the tabernacle so that no one can go in and work. That's the appearance of this. That's the glory of God. The cloud, the Shekinah glory, fills the tabernacle so that no one can work. The same thing will happen in terms of temple. But tabernacle and temple are both running on in one level the idea of a restored Eden sanctuary. That's why if you read carefully, you'll know that there's a whole garden motif going on in both places. In both places, you know you have palm trees, you know, either carved or embroidered, you know, you different types of fruit carved or embroidered. It's it's a whole garden motif because you're going back to Eden. Now when Adam and Eve were driven out of the garden, you will recall this, and this is not rhetorical, so some of you can even answer. uh, Why couldn't they go back in? What prevented their entrance back into the garden? The cherubim. The cherubim are the guardians of the holiness of God. So you first come across the cherubim, not in Ezekiel, but right in Genesis, guarding the way back with a flaming sword. In the tabernacle... You have cherubim in, uh, in, sort of, uh, embroidered into the curtain that separates the most holy place from the holy from the holy place. The guardians of the temple of God. The mercy seat is cherubim. In the temple, it's the same. Cherubim are carved into the doors. You are going back to Eden in recognition that there are the guardians of the holiness of God. And if you trespass, you'll be struck dead. So if you go in, even if you're the most high priest, if you go in without blood and you go in and it's not the day of atonement, you will die, because the cherubim will strike you down. The temple is not a place that says, come on in. The temple is a place that says, come in and you'll die. Unless you come in through the blood of the sacrifice, mediated by a perfect high priest. That's the message. The cherubim and garden are clearly connecting you back to Genesis. Now, here, in Ezekiel, God leaves his temple. He moves out. He abandons his home, and the Babylonians destroy it. Now later, the people are going to come back. Nehemiah, Ezra, if you're familiar with this, post-exilic prophets, they're going to build a temple. But what are you never told about that temple? What's different from the post-exilic temple than what you had with the tabernacle and Solomon's temple? The glory never returns. The glory never returns. The tabernacle, the cloud fills it. That's how you know God's there. Solomon's Day, the cloud fills it. That's how you know God's there. Poseidon Temple, never a word that God ever moved in. I would argue because he didn't. Where does God meet with man? Where does God meet with people? Where is sacred space? Well, you have your post-exilic temple, but God doesn't seem to move in. But a few centuries later, you have a voice say, Destroy this temple, and three days later I will raise it. Everyone's confused. It's taken 40-odd years to build this temple. But it's not until after the resurrection that his disciples knew that Jesus was speaking about his body. But where does God meet with man? He meets with us in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the fulfillment of temple, in fact, in some ways, in terms of incarnation, you can't have a meeting of God with human beings more than the God who is a human being, the Son of God who becomes incarnate. That's the tightest possible metaphysical connection between deity and humanity you can imagine. He's the God-Man forevermore. That's temple, a sort of. That's the idea of temple glorified. Jesus Christ is the temple. And this is why you get things like 1 Corinthians. We are the temple of God. Why? Because in Christ, the Spirit fills us. We are the temple. That language is very clear. 1 Peter chapter 2, we are living stones being built into a spiritual house that is being built into God's temple. Why? Because where God meets with people in the new covenant isn't constrained to a building, it's the church. It's the people, the point of the temple was always, this is where God meets with people. He meets with people in Jesus Christ and in union with him. That's the fulfillment of temple. Which is why, in the new heavens and new earth, there is no temple, John says. "I look, there's no temple. Why? Because the all things a temple. Uh, you know, there's, there's one cube in scripture, that's the Holy of Holies. The new Jerusalem in Revelation 21 is a perfect, enormous cube. It's so much bigger in terms of square, uh, square footage, square mileage, than you would ever be able to imagine if you lived in Israel. The, places, the, the the New Jerusalem is enormous! As tall as it's wide. It, it's this perfect cube. And, and there's no way anyone in Israel could possibly fathom the distances. Because you're not supposed to measure it. You're supposed to say, my goodness, if I was living in the first century, my only thought would be, you can't possibly get out of that thing! You could live your whole life and never get to the boundaries of it. Exactly. The old covenant temples that don't come in or you die the fulfillment and glory is, you can't get out! You're always in the Holy of Holies! Everywhere you go is the Holy of Holies, because God has consummated His union with you. Wherever you are in the new heavens and new earth, that's the Holy of Holies, because the Holy of Holies is where the glory of God is. That's always been the point. You can't get out. Jesus Christ... We are told in Hebrews chapter 1, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Ezekiel fell fell down dead, in a sense, when he saw the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. But Jesus isn't the appearance of the likeness of the glory. He is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. When we celebrate communion, we celebrate the destruction of the temple, the real temple, and we recall that God has built it again. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it. The glory of God in the real temple can never be withdrawn. It can never be destroyed. Because everything temple always meant is found and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So in union with him, we ourselves become part of God's temple and plan where he meets with us. And one day we'll see it. One day we will will experience that vision in reality of Revelation 4 where we will see all these beings crying out, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. We will see that. We will be there. We will be a part of that group in that glory, in that light. And, and, and for once, you know, we will actually be framed for it. So, so part of the new experience of the glorified body is that our ears will be able to withstand that kind of noise and our eyes will be calibrated to that kind of light and we'll stand in unimaginable, inexpressible, blinding, deafening glory and somehow we'll see and we'll hear and it'll be home to us. We're going to live in the presence of the power and glory of God forever and ever and ever. Because the glorious God was willing to die. Because the Son of God was willing to take on a human body so he could pay pay the penalty for our sin. Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory and standard and being of God. And so this morning may God help us to recognize in part how great he is partly by showing us how we don't have the categories for these things, but also to recognize how great the gift of His Son is, that a God this great and high and transcendent would save us through the death of His Son. I'm going to ask uh, the, the folk to come forward and help distribute uh, the elements this morning. You can take a moment to pray uh, individually to ask that God will, will uh, by His Spirit, make this meaningful for you as we celebrate communion together. And then in just a moment, I'll lead us in prayer.